This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. You were very careful with the intro this week, because last week you flubbed it. I flubbed it so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since I flubbed it, but... It has been. It has been, yeah. it has been quite a while. And we were talking before we started recording about, I don't know, somehow this bizarre need to exercise caused you to watch television. <laughs> um, you you want to explain that to our listeners? Well, actually, you know, last week I told a long rambling story and that was the entire show because it was our holiday show. But this time I'm going to tell a story that actually leads into a real honest to goodness topic. So first the story. Um, the last year I've been like the ultimate couch potato because getting this... Um, book finished, Liar's Legacy finished, it required so much just doing nothing other than just being at the computer. So everything else in life went on hold for just endless chunks of time. And so I didn't really get much exercise and it shows. I mean, at least, you know, I should have my heart be able to pump or something, you know? So if I really, really dislike exercising because it's boring, I also tend to not watch a lot of TV because there's very little that will get me to sit there and just sit there and do nothing else but watch TV. It's boring. But combine the two and all of a sudden you have a really motivated reason to exercise and I have tolerance to watch things that maybe I normally wouldn't have interest or time in, time to do. So what I've been doing lately is jumping on like a rebounder, a trampoline, and I end up doing that for a whole lot longer than I would normally because I'll be like, oh, well, I'll just watch another episode or whatever. So it's been great for my health. But it's also been really interesting to me because, as you guys know, I don't really watch a lot of TV. And so I don't have a lot of time to really stop and analyze storytelling from that sort of perspective. And so one of the shows and so here's where we lead, here's where we lead into the topic Um one of the shows that I've been watching is Deadwood. And Deadwood is, uh, it was written by, I forget his name, but I know that he then, um, he developed Alzheimer's or some sort of uh, dementia and was losing his ability to write. And the show had only three seasons and then it, for some reason it stopped. I don't know why. And so eventually they did a movie 10 years later to kind of close it all out. Now, as far as Deadwood is concerned, there is something, okay, it's probably the most uncouth show around in terms of vulgarity. Every other word is F this and F that, and they, a lot of C words get thrown around, and it's just, it's, it's so vulgar. And you would think, you know, come on, there's got to be more creative ways to, you know, write the script, but it is also simultaneously one of the most richly linguistic, is the richest linguist I've 
uh, whatever I'm trying to say, I can't get the words out properly, but the dialogue is so de- deep and so rich and, and the sentence structure so complex that it's almost like you have to throw in all that vulgarity to balance it out, you know, to, to, to break up the, the, this rich textured dialogue. It's brilliant. And, and, and that's part of what keeps the show so captivating. But what also really interests me is that, and I'm sorry, there's going to be spoilers. So if you've never seen the series and you want to, please forgive me, but this is important. So here we go. Um, at the show's opening, there is a character, a main character in this series, who is really, really not a good guy. He's obviously killed people. He has people who work for them to kill people. They scam people out of money. It all takes place in the in the Dakotas, in the gold rush era, and it's just this tiny outpost little town. And it's all these, it's all really rough. There's no real law there. And so it's... It's the Wild West in, in a way. And so this this main character, I think he owns like the primary saloon in, in the town. And so he runs the whores and he, you know, is constantly scheming. And he's this figure point where everybody in the town either is afraid of him or kowtows to him or wants to work with him or whatever. So when this series opens, he is not somebody you're rooting for. You are absolutely rooting against him. You can't stand him or whatever. By the time you get to the third season, which is where I'm at, all you want is for this guy to win. So somehow between season one, the starting of season one and the starting of season three, he's gone from worst person in the story to, oh, please let him be the winner. And that just fascinated me. How? Why? Why am I rooting for this guy so strongly when he's clearly was was the bad guy, you know? And so I got to thinking about that in terms of storytelling, in terms of villains. You know, we get this question a lot about how do I make my villains realistic? How do I make my villains feel like they have emotional depth and, and all of that? And there's actually a specific question I've been asked, which I'm going to give you a very pithy answer to before <laughs> we move on. And that is, you know, how do I keep my villains um, from becoming just stereotype mafioso bad guys? To which I say, you give them something that they really want or that they really want, love, and you make them afraid to lose it. So that give them something to that they're afraid to lose is how you make somebody real because we all have that. And once you find that character's thing, then they're no longer just a thug with an interchangeable nameless thug. Now they're a person with desires and fears and wants and history and whatever. But going back to this this character and in the Deadwood show, I got to realizing that the reason you want him to win so bad is because as the show progressed, others moved into the storyline who are even worse than he is and who have done things that you they, there's no justice in this world if they can continue to do what they do without any repercussion. And he's the only guy left in town smart enough to outscheme them and to get 
to, to make things okay again. And so even though he's kind of in this morally gray area, you've by this point started to see that, okay, he does have some redeeming qualities, and now he's kind of your hope to take out somebody, actually multiple somebodies, who are far, far worse. So like, okay, well, that's really what it is. Now, well, what about those other characters? Right now, there's one of them is still kind of, you're, you really can't stand him, but he still has stuff happen to him. You don't care if he dies, but he's multidimensional because he too has his own trials and travails that he has to overcome. And then there's the baddest baddie of them all, who's not a violent man. He's just somebody who comes in and decides to take the whole town for himself. How are they going to get over him? And does he feel um, does he feel real? And he does feel very real and not stereotypical because he doesn't exhibit stereotypical behaviors. He he has almost he he shows multiple sides of himself. He can be very jovial and and agreeable and doesn't seem to want violence, but he can flip on a switch if he doesn't get what he wants, and all of a sudden he becomes just ruthless in a very gentlemanly sort of way. So in each instance, how they made these villains, gave these villains depth was slightly different. The one that fascinated me the most was the one that flipped from that guy deserves to die to, oh my God, please let him win. That to me is the most fascinating. So then I stopped and I said, all right, well, where have I seen this before? And I went, oh, we've seen that in Game of Thrones. Same exact technique. And I know that it's different in the books than how it played out on the um, on the, the TV series. So I'm speaking specifically to the, the screen version. But I'm thinking of Cersei Lannister, who is despicable and has no redeeming value whatsoever. And if anyone deserved to just have a horrible ending, and again, spoilers, and I'm so sorry, and who we might have felt cheated by the ending, it was her. And yet, there were episodes which you actually rooted for her. And those were episodes in which, even though they were designs of her own making and her own scheming, she ended up against a foe even more irrational, more extreme, more um, uncontrollable and indifferent and right in his own eyes. And I'm thinking of the High Sparrow where what he, the way he operated was with such um, self-righteous, I'm right, and the world needs to be the way that I'm going to be it, and we're just going to basically destroy or punish or humiliate anybody who doesn't adhere to our worldview. And it was incredibly frustrating. And so even though she herself was a despicable character with no redeeming value, when faced against a character with a different set of unlikability, but so he's unlikable in a different way, and, and the things he's putting into play and, and what he's doing to other people are affecting your view of him, you actually want this despicable character for just this once, please let her win. You know, of all the times, she's always winning everything else, let this be one that she wins too, you know? Mm -hmm. So you put her in contact with worse characters, more despicable characters, and all of a sudden the person you hate most 
become someone that you're rooting for. And I think what that does on a psychological level to someone who's participating as an observer, a viewer, or in this case, a reader of the story, is it engages the emotions in a very complex way that becomes compelling. And it's that sort of interplay, the drama, the richness, where there's always something else, something bigger, uh, that it keeps the characters from becoming stereotypical or cliched, and it keeps you engaged and wanting to see what happens next. And that's my analysis of how to keep villains from just becoming the cardboard character bad guy to fill that bad guy role in a story. I have never seen the show Deadwood, so I, I can't imagine... I can imagine what you're talking about, but I'm, I'm curious about the very beginning of the show when you really disliked this guy. Were, was, were there good, good guys at the beginning of the show, and what happened to them th- throughout the course of the show? There, in that show, nobody is 100% good and nobody is 100% bad. They are all human. So I... I mean, there's spoilers. I'm sorry. I'll just give you the the basic rundown is you've got this guy who runs a salon. He's running a scam basically on um, prospectors with money who come in where they'll sell a piece of property um, for jack. They'll they'll jack up the value of the property by having uh, straw man bidders come in, say they really want it, and then basically wash their hands of it. But in this one instance, the claim actually proved to be very rich in gold, and so they killed the guy trying to get it back from him. Um, and in, they they would rob, uh, like there's this family that uh, left town, and they were supposed to, I guess, just rob them, but they ended up, uh, the guys who were doing it, it wasn't at the command of this guy, but the guys who were doing it uh, ended up killing the whole family. That That's the in the opening episode. But one little girl... Um, makes that out alive. And so, the, of course, they're going to try and kill her, and you know it. And and this guy, this this bad guy at the beginning of... you, He is totally okay with having the little girl killed because, you know, he needs to silence the witnesses. It wasn't his doing that things went so bad, but he's going to clean up those loose edges, and he'll, he'll just do that. He you He's obviously done really bad things, and he's not likable. He's also just awful to... The the woman who is his, um, I guess, his main uh, girl, uh, that the one that will sleep with him in his room, who kind of looks after him, it's awful to her. Um, just abusive and, and just horrible. There's no reason for you to like him, and there's no reason to expect that two episodes later, you're actually going to be rooting for him. And he does some of those things, those rough edges do sort of polish out. A bit along the way, but it doesn't change his character or who he is or what he's done. You just don't, he, he softens in, in some areas. Um, but another main character in this town at that time is, um, they, they, start, they call out, they start off by calling him Montana. Um, he's a, someone who's come into town to, um, he, he, he opens the first hardware store with his partner and he is a former marshal. So he's a a former lawman. He's not a lawman anymore, but he's got a quick temper. He's very self-righteous. He's not someone you can rely on to think 
um, he's necessarily going to do the, I want to say he's not, he's always going to do the right thing that's right in his eyes, but it's maybe not always prudent. You know, it's going to ruin something because he can't hold his tongue or, or whatever. And he's, he's not, he's likable, but he's not likable at the same time. So there are good guys, but they're not necessarily good. And then you have characters like um, Bill Hitchcock, Hitchcock, um, Wild Bill, um, who shows up, who doesn't stay in the story for super long, but he's another person that you you gravitate to and you like, and and nothing's really necessarily bad about him, but he's not with the story for the whole long way. Um, so it's just this this constant ebb and flow of, of characters as they grow, as the town grows, and you can't ever say, oh, this person is all good. Like, even the good people are sometimes just really rotten. I think the only person in this whole story that I have nothing bad to say about is the town doctor, who, as history will show us, is a former grave robber. <laughs> he, would, he, would, he, would rob, he would rob the graves to, to experiment, medical, to, to learn about the human body, right? So he has that, that mark on him. But in my opinion, he's like the best character because he, he's just, he's genuine and he cares about people and he's, he's has a lot of really important things to say. So. So in terms, I mean, this is a this is a four season long. Is that is it four? Is it going? It's, it's three seasons and then a one hour long movie, which I almost. I mean, I understand why they did it. It's to provide closure for all the storylines that you know just kind of ended abruptly. But it's nothing to write home about. You can tell. You could. You could just tell. It does not have that same. Depth. It just it's forcing so many closed lines into a single story that the only people who will appreciate it are those who who have watched all three seasons and just really need to know for their own sake how it ended. How would we? I mean, because you know, three plus seasons of television—that's a lot. Um, how would how would you? wedge something like that, like a, a bad guy character arc, a villain character arc, um, into a single story uh, where there's that kind of evolution in the character to, to where in the beginning this is just like pure evil and you just want the protagonist to just slit his throat, say, um, or something less vicious, but to, to do away with them. And then in the end, because I see this from time to time, but the, the kind of evolution you're talking about is lengthy. It's, I could see it happening over the course of a series, um, and I'm, I'm sure that a skilled writer could do it over the course of a book as well, but how would, how would you do it? Well, I, I think what you're saying about how it's something you would see over the course of a series is very true. I, I think it would be very, very difficult to do that in only one one book, just as it would be very difficult to pull that off in a one and a half hour movie. Because, But to do it, you have to ask yourself, well, what is this story about? Who is this story about? If the story is not about the villain, this this bad guy that you're trying to take from one step to the another to the next, then you don't really have the space to do that in a novel. So in a single novel. So like these these multi episode storylines, they don't follow just one person. They follow multiple people. All of them do. They follow how those lives are intertwined. And it's it's that 
multiple character intertwinedness that keeps the stories as enriching and long-lasting as they are. It's really, really hard to do that following only a single character without all the multiple plot lines going on at the same time. So I think where you would see that best in fiction are maybe some of these sci-fi sagas that cross, you know, they span 12, 13 books, or one of the ones that I I have not read that much as it is, and I've read even less sci-fi, but I have read multiple books in the Dune series. Love that series, even though some of them are so poorly written. That's how much I love them, (laughs) the stories. And what's fascinating to me is in the, the main Dune story, the one that started it off, which is the best of them all, it, um, you know, you have these different houses and there's houses that you are, you clearly know they're the good guys. And then there's these other houses. Well, they're the bad guys. Um, and by houses, it would be like in, uh, in night King's night, you know, it would be Duke so-and-so and his, all his land and all his men, that's his house, right? That his estate. So that's what these but they were the houses were enormous. They were like a whole planet, and then exploring beyond that. So this family name, if you were a Harkonnen, for example, it meant something. And in the time of the very first Dune book, um, if you were a Harkonnen, well, you had a bad, you had a reputation for not being a good guy. You know, you were with the the backstabbers and the the people who would come and invade, and and just not someone that you would necessarily trust, right? Well. In the prequels, going way, way back, the roles were flipped, where the Harkonnens, for example, they were the good guys, and the Treaties, who were the um, the good guys in present day, were the bad guys. And those sagas basically take you through that change of, you know, how it started off this way, and they span like tens of thousands of years, but over time, how is this this complete polar flip? Right. Mm -hmm. So you can see how um, it could be done that way. And then there's another series that I have not read, but I know it's very popular called The Wheel of Time. Um, And you could see how in something like that, uh, characters have so much time to so much space to grow over multiple books. Um, Until now, I've never really truly contemplated doing that, taking a character that is a villain in book two of a specific, uh, you know, we have the Monroe thrillers, we have the, the series, I guess you could say, right? Um, a specific series and, and developing that villain so that by the time we get to the end, um, they, they have a completely different role. All of my villains have always been one and done, or they might show up a few books later. And now that I have that in my head, if, and when the time ever comes, to do that type of writing, to me, I'm like, that's how you create a saga. That's the bones behind a saga, is these depth of character changes that happen over long stretches of time. And that's a great place to close because that's fascinating and gives us something to think about over the course of the next week. This is a great episode. I, I, I enjoyed this. I didn't have much to say, but I enjoyed your, I enjoyed it. <laughs> So thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed it as well. We will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. See you with you next week. <laughs>